Good morning, church. Great to see you this morning. Thank you for that good singing this morning. And aren't those great hymns of the faith uh, reminding us of the love of our Savior? Scripture that I've chosen to read today is found in Hebrews chapter 4. The author writes, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us not fear. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter the rest. As he had said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in the passage, it says, Thou shalt not enter my rest. Since therefore, it remains for some to enter in. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Well, I want to welcome you this morning and um, those online as well. We want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, we believe that Christ is the only way for us to be saved. And uh, today is the day of salvation. We invite you to receive him as Savior if you haven't. A couple of uh, announcements for us today. I want to begin by uh, sharing a video with you. Um, we're planning on having a loss of uh, the spouse seminar uh, through Grief Share on Saturday, and uh, I want you to see this video one more time. The death of a spouse brings a unique kind of pain. I didn't have energy to do anything. I didn't care if I made dinner or ate or whatever. I didn't fit in anymore with the group of couples. I had no idea how I was going to face the future. If you feel like you're alone in your grief, be encouraged that you are not. Whatever you're facing, others have faced it too. And at a loss of a spouse event, there are people waiting to help. At a loss of a spouse event, you'll learn what to expect in the weeks and months after your spouse's death and how to survive the loneliness. Loss of a Spouse features video interviews with seven respected Christian counselors, psychologists, and pastors, plus the inspiring stories of widowed people who've learned how to rebuild their lives. And if you know people who are grieving the death of a spouse, invite them to come to this life-changing event. It's in talking about your circumstances with other people that you begin to understand your situation better. That helps you process your grief. Find hope, comfort, and encouragement for your journey of grief. Make plans to attend a loss of a spouse event near you. is to those who have lost a loved one, and especially those who have lost a spouse. 
um, I would encourage you that um, if you feel like you're doing okay, that's great, but you're probably not doing as well as you think you are. And this, uh, this ministry will really help you to get some tools and some uh, key keys to help you to, to take this journey of grief. And then in February, we're starting Grief Share again. And uh, so if you want to attend either one of those, please contact me or the office and we'll get you registered for that. Uh, Family Matters business meeting has uh, been scheduled for February the 2nd. That's this Wednesday at 7 o'clock. We had to cancel last time because of a lack of a quorum. We'll be voting on the budget. If you haven't received a copy of that, you can pick it up right outside of the office. They're on a table there. Uh, or if you have any questions, contact uh, one of the pastors or a board member. Uh, today we're going to be having a special presentation by uh, Charlene, who is working with, come on up Charlene, who is working with Freedom in Christ, and maybe many of you have had the opportunity of going through one of those seminars, and uh, she's going to be sharing a little bit more with us today about that. I get to come up here and take off my mask. (laughs) I'm Charlene Monroe, as he said, and I have been working with Freedom in Christ Ministries for at least 20 years, probably a little bit longer. I didn't calculate it exactly. Um, I included a copy of my prayer support letter in the bulletin, so I hope you'll all read that. And at the bottom, it's got a little box, nice big blue box, about my seminar next weekend. It's not really a seminar, but my presentation about my ministry in Freedom in Christ and the changes I'm hoping to increase um, the time and um, leadership in the ministry. I've been asked to do that by my supervisor, and we're preparing for that. Um, For now, I just wanted to give you a quick lesson with the Freedom in Christ materials just to give you a taste of what it's about. Some of you have been in the class, but not all of you. Um, So I put a bookmark that's for you to keep and take home, and it's got the Who I Am in Christ list. And on the back of the prayer letter is also the Who I Am in Christ list in a bigger font. And I want you guys all to get that out right now because we're going to read it all together. Uh, This list contains truths from the Bible telling us who we are as Christians. This is who God says we are. And truth is really important for Christians. It's powerful in transforming us into the image of Jesus. In John 8.32, Jesus says, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So being free or living a victorious Christian life requires that we know the truth. And not just an intellectual knowledge, but we have to actually choose to believe the truth and act on it and live by it. Now, in our Western churches, we have mostly given up on the practice of reciting the Apostles' Creed or other true statements. When I was young, we used to do responsive readings in church. Some of you probably still remember that. When we say these truths out loud, it serves notice to all spiritual authorities that our allegiance is with Jesus. It also cements these truths in our hearts and helps us to hear what we're saying and 
make that commitment real. So I want you to read this Who I Am in Christ list out loud with me. Don't read any titles or the Bible references, just the I Am statements, starting with I Am God's Child. You ready? I am God's child. I am Christ's friend. I have been justified. I am united with the Lord and one with him in spirit. I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I am a saint. I have been adopted as God's child. I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. I am complete in Christ. I am free forever from condemnation. I am assured that all things work together for the good. I am free from any condemning charges against me. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I have been established anointed, and sealed by God. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am confident that the good work God has begun in me will be perfected. I am a citizen of heaven. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound mind. I can find grace and mercy in time of need. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. I am the salt and light of the earth. I am a branch of the true vine, a channel of his life. I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. I am a personal witness of Christ's. I am God's temple. I am a minister of reconciliation. I am God's co-worker. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. I am God's workmanship. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So I wonder, as you were reading that, how many of you fully believe with all of your heart that all of those statements apply to you personally Can I just get a show of hands? That's awesome. That's probably at least half. And and so that's really good. If you believed all those statements are true about you personally, then you probably are walking your Christian life in freedom most of the time. But if we don't believe one or some of those statements about ourselves, then Satan will take advantage of our lack of belief or faith in the truth. He can harass us with all kinds of doubts, worries, confusion, low self-esteem, temptations, fears, deceptions, and many other and worse negative forms of thinking. It also gives him some influence over us because he can trick us easily if we are not standing firm in God's truth. For instance, it is more difficult to obey God if we don't firmly believe in his love for us and his goodness. I do find that most Christians who take the Freedom in Christ course or read the books don't believe all of the statements at the start of the program. I would recommend that you look up the references, especially for the statements that you struggle with the most. 
Normally, we give everyone who takes the Freedom in Christ course this list, and we ask them to read it out loud by themselves for every day for at least 40 days and up to 60 days, each time thinking carefully through each statement and choosing to believe each one, whether it feels like it's true or not. Our feelings don't make it false or true. God's word makes it true, and we have to choose to believe the truth. The goal with this exercise is that after 40 to 60 days, you should be able to read this list and confidently assert that, yes, these statements are all true about me. It should change the way you see yourself. It should have a positive impact on your faith in God and the Bible, on your emotional health, and on your Christian walk. So this is a small sample of the Freedom in Christ teachings, which are principles from the Bible. I do encourage you to do that homework and read that um, list over the next 40 to 60 days so you can see for yourself how it, how it impacts you. Um, and if you would like to hear more, please come next week, Sunday at 7, here at the church. I'm going to be doing a more detailed presentation. Also, if you are interested in supporting me, please either come next week or you can look on the... Um, prayer letter and find information about the financial support and if you want to commit for praying to praying for me please let me know so i can get your information and put you on the letter prayer letter list so i can send you out the prayer letter to pray for me thank you so much for your time and mark's coming up now much charlene it is an excellent Excellent ministry. Before I release the uh, Kids for Kingdom Kids, uh, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning already that we have experienced you in a powerful way through uh, the singing of songs and through witness uh, of the word. Lord, we pray now that you would open our ears and help us to hear clearly uh, the words of truth as Pastor Mark comes and shares them with us. And Lord, we pray that our lives will be changed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. That's probably going to help. Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. If you're here in person or whether you're joining us online, open your Bibles uh, to the book of 1 John. As we continue this series, looking at this letter that John wrote uh, to the various churches. Uh, And today's lesson is going to be one I think is very relevant uh, to our lives. Uh, It's probably a lesson that you've wrestled with. Uh, or maybe you're still wrestling with as you seek to live out your faith. Because John is talking about just that balance of, that every believer has to face, that balance of being in the world, but not of the world. And he's really contrasting the difference between living in the kingdom of God versus living in this world. Uh, he's talking about, you know, uh, well, in, in the end, he's talking about love. 
uh, but he's making sure that we're not loving all the wrong things. Uh, and if you want to follow along with me, you can. Our passage is actually quite a short one this morning, uh, but it's packed with truth. First uh, John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 is what we're going to be covering. So let's read it together. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The, lo- the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Let's pray. Father God, um, again, we, we stand here this morning confessing how much we need you. Uh, Lord, um, even just to open your word and have your Holy Spirit speak this truth into our lives, Lord, is something that we desperately need your Holy Spirit's presence to be doing. And as Warren said, Lord, you are here. Uh, Lord, you are present with us. Even though we can't see you, uh, we, we stand on that truth knowing that you are here, uh, that you are with us, and that you, we are your people, and that you are shaping us through uh, looking at this truth this morning. We pray, the Lord, that your truth uh, would not return void, but, Lord, would, would be effective in our lives, preparing us to live lives, um, lives that are a good testimony, lives that are a witness, lives that are fully prepared to do the work that you have prepared us for, and that, Lord, that, that transformation would happen through us looking at your word this morning. So be with us, uh, Lord. Um, yeah, lead us into truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's an old fable that I found this week that I think illustrates well what we're talking about. It's about a man who found an eagle's egg. It just had fallen out of the nest and not quite sure Knowing what to do about it, he decided, well, he knows where there's a nest of a prairie chicken, so he took the eagle's egg, put it in the prairie chicken's nest, hoping that the, 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 the mother would raise it and, and all that things. And you know what? Against all odds, that eaglet hatched with the brood of prairie chickens, uh, and he grew up with them. So all of his life, this eagle thought that he was a prairie chicken, and so he tried to do all the things that the prairie chickens did. He, he scratched at the dirt for seeds and insects, he clucked, he, he cackled. And he flew, but he only flew in sort of brief thrashing of wings and a flurry of feathers, no more than a few feet off the ground. After all, that's how prairie chickens were supposed to fly. And the years passed, and the eagle grew old. And one day the eagle looked up, and he saw a magnificent bird far above him in a cloudless sky, just hanging there with that you know, majestic grace you know, of those wings on the powerful wind currents. And he said, what a beautiful bird. And he turned to his neighbors and he said, what, what is that? And his neighbor answered, well, that's an eagle. He's the king of birds. But you shouldn't give it a second thought. You could never be like him. So the eagle never gave it a second thought. And he died thinking he was a prairie chicken. And as they say, the moral of the story is that if you were created to fly... Don't get too attached to the earth. And that's where that story becomes our story. Because as Christians, God's desire for us is to soar to incredible spiritual heights. But some of us are so content with living in the world that we never even get off the ground. We're not the prairie chickens scratching this this planet. We are citizens of heaven. 
that God is prepared to fly. And that's why the Bible often warns us so very forthrightly about the dangers of, of this world. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Jesus says in John 17, verse 15 and 16, says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Luke chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. Jesus says, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit himself? And even from our passage this morning, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And those are very strong passages that should serve as a very stern warning to us as the people of God against not only worldly living, but worldly loving. And yet, as I speak about that this morning, we should probably take just a few moments just to make sure we're on the same page and that we're talking about the same thing. Because that word that John uses to talk about the world, it has several different meanings. It does in the Greek just like it does in the English. And you have to know what meaning he's actually using here to understand what he's saying. Because the word world uh, can mean world the place, just like we use this is the world. Welcome to it. Uh, world is part of God's creation. And we see the Bible using that meaning in verses like John 17, verse 5. It says, now, the Father, now, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Uh, that's Jesus praying, uh, talking about the creation of this planet. Uh, Acts 17, verse 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. 1 Corinthians 14, 10 says, There are doubtless many different languages in the world. And none is without meaning. And even the book of Romans says, uh, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the world, you can use that word, the world, to, to talk about, you know, this little rock that we live on that's hurtling through space called the earth, uh, the world. Uh, and, you know, the world, in that sense, is something that God, when he created, he called that very good when he finished the creation. The world, I mean, the world is full of wonders and beauty and things like ice cream. It's, it's, I mean, its very existence, we're told, proclaims the glory of God. So I think it's unlikely when John says, don't love the world, that he's not saying, don't love that. Um, you know, we are, to, this planet is pretty awesome, actually. So, uh, but there's another way the word world is used in the Bible as well. And that's just to refer to the people who, who live here, the inhabitants of the world. It's just, yeah, it's shorthand for talking about us. And this is actually a personal favorite of John in his writing. But, I mean, you see John chapter 1, verse 29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, that's us. That's the people. First uh, John 2, 2 from last week. He's the propitiation for our sins, not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. And perhaps best known of all, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the word world can be used to talk about the entirety of, of humankind. And that's a world that God himself says he loves. 
God loves the world. God loves people, even sinful people. And he loves them so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to save them. So it seems unlikely, again, to me that this is what John has in mind when he says in our verse, don't love the world. Because I don't think John would tell us to hate something that God loves. But there is one more meaning of the word world that's used in the Bible. And that's the world. When it's presented as a rival for the kingdom of God. The world is often referred to as a place where where sin rules, where defiance to God is the norm and where selfishness is king. In fact, you can see it when that word world is used in this way. You can see it as basically a tale of two kingdoms. And those two kingdoms are constantly at war with one another. And the first is the kingdom of God where God rules, and the second is the kingdom of the world where sin enslaves and Satan has established his own authority. And we see that use of the word world on display in verses like John 12, 31, where Jesus says, now the judgment of of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's talking about the devil. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in your transpassions and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And even back to the letter of 1 John, 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of of the evil one. The world, when it's used in that context, is it's, it's the way of life that is lived apart from God. It's a place of selfish and sinful desires that ter- determines a person's destiny. It's the total corruption in sin upon what is good. And that sin distorts every value, every good thing that God has established. The world that we are not to love as believers is the world that by its very existence is ruled by Satan and, and is, in, is opposition to God. That's the world we don't love. And John gives us three reasons in this letter that we should not love the world like that. And the first is because of who we are. Uh, he says in 1 John 2, verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Later in this letter, John will say that tells us he got, God is love. But there are things that even our loving God hates. And as believers in Jesus, we are children of God. We are members of God's kingdom. We are lovers of God. And when the Bible talks about love, it does so with the expectation that that love has full commitment behind it. When God says love, he means love with all that we are. All of our being, all our hearts, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Love never means loving halfway. It's never a love that's sort of only partially committed or faithful. If you love something, you either love it with all that you are or you don't really love it at all. So if we are to love the world, we actually leave no room for the love of God in our lives. Because again, everything in the world is in direct opposition to the things of God. You can't both go left and right at the same time. There's no middle ground that we can stand on. There's no straddling the fence 
as some people try to do, where, you know, you can try to keep one foot in the kingdom of heaven and one foot still, you know, here in the world of sin. It just can't be done. Those two kingdoms are mutually exclusive. You can't love them both. Jesus even says, Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Philo, a first century Jewish philosopher, said, it is impossible for the love of the world to exist with the love of God as it is impossible for light to exist, and light and darkness to coexist. As Christians, we are not to love the world, and we do not love the world because we have chosen to love the Lord. And we can't have it both ways. And He is to be our everything. So when we choose to love, we love God, not the world. You can't have both. And then secondly, uh, we don't love the world as Christians because of what the world does. Here's verse 16 of 1 John chapter 2. It says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from God, but is from the world. You know, as the people of God, we are, we are called to be holy people, uh, to live holy lives, to be holy as God is holy. We're to allow God to, to you know, work in our lives to bring sanctification um, and freedom from sin in our lives. But the world, on the other hand, is mired in sin. Everything they have, every motive, every purpose, every desire is corrupted. And John actually outlines sort of three different areas of temptation. Three sort of things that drive the world's sinful behavior and this rebellion against God. He talks about the desires of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I'm not sure John meant us necessarily to over-dissect that list, but there are some, thin, some good insights, I think, to be gained about the working of sin in our lives that we can get from that list. Because the lust of the flesh, I mean, normally that brings to mind sort of the idea of sexual immorality, but this kind of lust is actually much broader than that. It's, it's sort of any degradation of the natural desires of life. And you know, many times those desires are proper, even God-given, but when sin gets a hold of them, they become so destructive. So you have hunger. That's normal. That's natural. But that hunger turns into gluttony. And you have thirst that becomes drunkenness. You have sleepiness that becomes sloth and laziness. You have even sex, which is God's gift to us in the confines of marriage, becomes sexual immorality when lust takes over. These are often normal needs that are now taken by sin to levels of excess and indulgence in our life. And Galatians 5, verses 19 and 21 talk, says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the lust of the flesh. Then he talks about the lust of the eyes. And here sin moves sort of from a craving within our bodies to, well, to a corruption of our thought life, I guess. And, you know, sadly, this is what commercials on TV are all about. You know, commercials, their very purpose is to, for you to see something and for you to just start desiring it. It's like, it's like, what are the reasons they sell ice cream? And they use words like decadent and sinful. Like, it's just like, why? It's ice cream. It's like delicious. It's delicious. Uh, but they want to create desire in you by what you see. 
You know, something you didn't even know you were missing in your life until you saw it, and now you can't live without it because our eyes have an appetite. This is sin creating within us a covetousness. It's our sinful nature, not just being satisfied with the sins we know, but wanting even more ways to indulge. So first, sin corrupts sort of our body's desires, and then it begins to corrupt the thoughts of our minds. And then it leads us, finally, to the pride of life. Um, you know, pride is really the root of all sin. It is our pride that, that, you know, tries to put ourselves before God. It's our pride that says, you know what, we know better. It's our pride said that we should, you know, do things our way. It's our pride that says we can do it on our own. It's our pride that, that leads us to try to remove God from the throne of our lives to put ourselves in charge. But you know what? To our own shame, it's only sin that really rules if we do that. Pride is the exaltation of ourselves. And the word that John actually uses for pride here, when he talks about pride, it's interesting, it's a word that indicates something that's completely empty. It's not pride in something, it's pride in nothing. It's pride just for the sake of pride. John MacArthur even notes that the devil used all three of these temptations to lead humanity into original sin. In the Garden of Eden, Eve craved something to eat. That's the lust of the flesh. She saw the fruit was attractive, the lust of the eyes, and knew that it was desirable for gaining knowledge like God. That's the pride of life. So we do not love the world because the world is controlled by sin. It's controlled by lust and it's controlled by pride. And we're called to be holy people. And then finally, we do not love the world because, well, of where the world is going. Uh, Verse 17. And the world, he says, is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And you know, it's interesting here that the word that John uses uh, for passing away is actually in the present tense, which means it's continually passing away. Uh, It's constantly fading. So John's not just saying that one day, the world will pass away. He's saying that every day the world is passing away. Even now, the world of sin is continually passing away. It's constantly eroding. Even now, it continues to disintegrate. Without God, even now, the world is in a, is in a constant state of dissolution because the sinful world is a world that continues just to destroy itself. And that means there's no life there. There's no hope. There's no lasting purpose or meaning. There's no sort of saying, you know, that's something to look forward to. Because there's no future in it. And you know, nobody buys stock in a company they know for sure is going to go bankrupt. Nobody's going to get on a boat and sail away on a boat that's sure to sink. And no reasonable person would lay up treasure where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. To set your heart on the things of this world is only asking for heartache and misery in the end. Because while sin makes all kinds of claims that it'll lead you to to happiness or whatever, all it can really ever deliver is meaninglessness and vanity. Richard Capon in his book Finishing Strong says one of the saddest realities of our culture today is the number of people whose lives are characterized by emptiness. Literally and spiritually. It says, the nest is empty, the bank account is full, the promotion, the plaques designate success and achievements, but somehow all those good things are still not enough. 
because the world is passing away. But what a contrast to those who do the will of God. John says in verse 17 of our passage, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Some translations uh, say whoever does the will of God lives forever. That's the NIV. Or has eternal life. That's what John's talking about here. And that too should be understood as being in the present tense. This is actually important to understand because when John, when he talks about eternal life, he's not just talking about you get to go to heaven when you die. For John, that would almost be an afterthought. When John talks about eternal life, he's talking about living for God right now. He's talking about experiencing that kind of life today in the present. Living with Jesus is eternal life. And this, right now, this is eternal life. That's why Jesus says in John 10.10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. The King James says, have life abundant. New Living Translation says rich and satisfying life. The message, paraphrase, says Jesus came so you can have more and better life than you ever dreamed of. Because as someone once said, the real tragedy is not that people die. The real tragedy is that so many people fail to truly live. In Jesus, we discover real life and what real living is. And that is to know God and to love God and to serve God and to be a part of his kingdom even while we're here on earth. That's what eternal life really is all about. It's not just about one day. It's about every day. And what, that's a contrast we need to see. And that's the understanding we need to have as we make our choice about how we are going to live and who we'll be living for. That's the tension we face every day as we seek to, people, to be people who must be in the world, but also not of the world. And that's not always an easy task. So just as in sort of in closing, to help us out along a little bit, let me close with three applications uh, or words of advice that I hope will help us sort of better find this balance that we desire. These are three applications that help us sort of live in the world but not be of the world. And the first application I would give you is, is this. As believers, we need to be so careful to guard our hearts. Um, one thing I read this week that I thought was profound was Said so is that if the world is going to get into your life, it will get in through your heart. And yet, this is a battle that many Christians are not finding victory in. Um, George Gallup, in an article in Leadership Magazine, said statistically, there's little difference in ethical behavior between the church and the unchurched. There's as much pilferage and dishonesty among the church as the unchurched. As many Christians get divorced, cheat on taxes, lie to their spouses, call in sick to work to go golfing, watch X-rated movies, read their horoscopes, have premarital sex, and all the rest as non-Christians. Then he says there's almost no difference morally between people who go to church and people who don't. Because for many Christians, they are so in the world that they are of the world. And that process usually happens in sort of the same way. Uh, the first thing that happens is we kind of become casual about sin. Uh, we, we adopt a sort of, you know, live and let live attitude. We, we begin to think, you know, what's so bad about letting people make their own decisions and live, live their own way and adopt, you know, a different lifestyle choice? That's all good for them. And, and sort of, you know, we, we, we're just comfortable, casual about sin, um, comfortable with being, have sin all around us. It doesn't bother us really that much anymore. And when that happens, the next danger is that we begin to fall into compromise. 
thinking, well, you know what, if all that sin that I'm so comfortable with isn't so wrong for others, maybe a little taste of my own isn't going to hurt. And then before we know it, all of those little compromises along the way begin to conform us to the world. And soon we are living just as the world lives. We adopt its values, we adopt you know, its own desires for our own. And if we're not careful, we face the very big danger of being condemned along with the world. 1 Corinthians 11.32 says, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Disciplined. That's guarding our hearts. That's why we guard our hearts. Because the path to, 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 to temptation is often just, it's so easy to fall into. But there are many opportunities along the way to make a change. If we're intentional about living carefully and guarding our hearts. We need to be so careful about the way that we live. But if you do choose to live differently, know this as well. The world will still hate you for it. Uh, This is our second lesson. You know, the world is still controlled by the evil one, and that means anyone who lives for God has a target on their back. You have to know that. Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, beginning of verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And that can make living in the world downright uncomfortable at times. Uh, Warren Wiersbe compares it to a scuba diver. You know, a person can put on a scuba suit and live underwater, but it's never really going to feel like their natural habitat. The same is true about the world we live in right now. This world we're living in as Christians is never truly going to feel like home for us until the Lord returns and the rule of Christ is established. And that means in the meantime, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a battle. That's why the Bible speaks so much of spiritual warfare because we still have an enemy who's still trying to trip us up. But here's the hope you also need to have. John 16, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, living in this world is not going to be easy, but we have the promise of victory in Christ. Then our final application about living in the world is for us to remember that we as Christians are to live our lives to be a testimony to the world. Because as someone once said, there's only two things you can do here on earth that you're not going to be doing in heaven. The first one is sin. And the second is telling other unbelievers about Jesus. And they ask, which of those two things do you think God is keeping us here to be doing? And Jesus makes it plain when he prays for his followers, John 17, 18. He says, as you sent me into this world, so I have sent them into this world. We're in the world because God has sent us here. He's placed us here. We're in this world because this is exactly where God wants us as his people. Because God has a purpose for us. God has a mission for us to accomplish here. We're in the world the same way that salt is in food. That We're in the world the same way that light is to be in darkness. We are to be a blessing. We are to be transformational. We are to be a testimony to the world of a greater life and a greater truth that is ours in Christ Jesus. And that means we're not to be hiding off, you know, cowering in our little corners of Christendom, Christendom, waiting for the same year to come. We're to be out there living our lives among the nations, among unbelievers, for them to see. Because, you know, one question I often ask myself is if this world system is so lost and so empty, why do people stay in it? 
And the answer is that they don't have any alternative. They don't know of any other choices. They've never had someone tell them about Jesus. So they live in darkness and spiritual blindness of the truth. And that's why it's so important for us as believers to live differently and have that testimony. To live the kind of lives that people will notice, that stand out from the world. I read a pastor, uh, a pastor I read about in a large church, once talked about a letter that he received that was written by a relative new, new Christian who was attending his church and is written to the person uh, by a person, that's all, is written by a person, becoming a Christian, written to a person who had influenced their life very greatly, a Christian. And let, listen to some of what she wrote. She says, you know, when we met, I began to discover a new vulnerability, a warmth, a lack of pretense in your life that really impressed me. I saw in you a thriving spirit, no signs of internal stagnation anywhere. I could tell that you were a growing person, and I liked that. I saw you had strong self-esteem, not based on the fluff of self-help books, but on something a whole lot deeper. I saw that you lived by convictions and priorities, and not just by convenience, self-pleasure, and financial gain. And I'd never met anyone like that before. I felt the depth of love and concern as you listened to me and didn't judge me. You tried to understand me. You sympathized and you celebrated with me. You demonstrated kindness and generosity, and not just to me, but to other people as well. And you stood for something. You were willing to go against the grain of society and follow what you believed to be true, no matter what people said and no matter how much it cost you. Then she says, as for those reasons and a whole host of others, I found myself really wanting what you had. And now that I've become a Christian, I wanted to write to you and tell you I'm grateful beyond words for how you lived your Christian life in front of me. And that's the power of, of a life well lived. And Jesus' desire is not that we are, Jesus' desire is that we be in the world, but not of the world. Because we're citizens of heaven even while being bound to this earth. And our lives should reflect that reality of that truth as we love God and live for him, even as we live in this fallen world. Let's pray. Father God, um, well, the reality is that living in this world is hard. Um, there's all kinds of tensions. There's all kinds of temptations. We often, as believers, face rejection and ridicule and even some outright persecution. Because the world often hates us because we belong to you. And yet, Lord, as believers, we know we have been sent here for a purpose. We are to be your witnesses. We are to have lives that are a testimony to the people around us that there is a different, there's a kingdom of God out there. And I pray that our lives would just proclaim that truth, that, that Lord, our lives would be light in the darkness, that they would be lamps on hillsides, that they would be salt in a saltless world. And help us as your believers to be in the world, but not of the world. And we do that, as we heard this morning, we do that by loving you. Uh, loving you first, loving you with, for, with all that we are and not loving the world. We do that by being holy and rejecting the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we do that by humbling ourselves and allowing you to reign in our lives. Because you are our God. You are the one who saved us. You are the one who redeemed us. We are your children. We have been purchased by your blood upon the cross. 
by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us, even, even in this world that hates us so much, I pray that you would help us to live as your people, live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and that, Lord, every day we would be taking hold of the eternal life that is ours in Christ Jesus. Help us to live this truth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.